Jonathan's love for him. It says Jonathan loved him so much, it says his soul was knit with the soul of David. Man, you talk about an intricate relationship. Now, I hate to even mention this, but you may hear this on the streets, that believe it or not, the homosexual community would use this passage to say that David and Jonathan had a same-sex relationship. That is so blasphemous and so false. David was married. He had many children and multiple wives as well. So it's obvious that David was not same-sex oriented. Of course not. That's not at all what it meant. That's a, a wretched twisting of the Scriptures. But Jonathan did love David and his soul was knit with David's soul. What is it that attracted him to David? His reaction to David's success is an an absolute contradiction to his father's attitude towards David's success. So he didn't follow his father's example in the way in which he looked at David versus the way Jonathan looked at David. So we have to give David some credit there. He saw something in David that attracted him. Even though his father saw him as a rival Jonathan did not. And interestingly, Jonathan, being the son of King Saul, would likely have been an heir to the king after Saul's death. But yet, Jonathan is giving David all of this glory and praise and admiration and is giving him these accolades, you could say. So much so that he was willing to even make a covenant with David. And as it says, he stripped himself and he gave much of his warfare garments to David as a sort of a surrendering to him and a recognition of how the Lord was in David, working in him and the kind of authority that God had given to him in the kingdom. Jonathan, too, remember, in the 14th chapter, had success against the Philistines as well. Saw them as the enemies of God. And it even has similar language when Jonathan talks about the Philistines as these uncircumcised Philistines. We can go up against them and we can take them out. We can take them out. So he shared that same sort of a spirit, which was really a spirit that was dedicated to the Lord. Believing, as it were, that with God all things would be possible, Jonathan was of the same mindset. But I think maybe more than all of the above would be that the fact that David was a man after God's own heart. And he is obviously displaying this. Where do you see David in all of this that's going around him? Jonathan's love for him, the people praising him for the tens of thousands that he had slain, the people in the 16th verse that says they love. David is silent during the whole episode that we read here. Quietness. Meekness and quietness is what characterizes David here. We don't see him tooting his own horn. Jesus says himself about him, a bruised reed will he not break and a smoking flax will he not quench. He shall not cry in the streets. He's not going to broadcast himself. The Messiah wouldn't, and Jesus didn't, and David being a type of Jesus is one that doesn't try to advertise himself. The Scripture says, he that speaketh of himself seeks his own glory. You know, people who talk a lot about themselves are oftentimes 
trying to bring some praise to themselves. What I did, what I, what I, what I. It's all I. I used to have a, uh, a little slogan with like a, um, something I pasted on my vehicle, my work vehicle, that came right out of the book of, uh, Proverbs 13, chapter 13. I believe it's verse 10. It says, only by pride cometh destruction. In the I, in the word of pride was huge. Only by pride comes destruction or anger or debate or dispute. Pride is one of the biggest problems that we all have in our lives, even as believers. When the Lord saves us, that pride should be crushed and replaced with Paul says, God forbid that I should be proudful except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows who the glory should go to. And that's how we should be. We should be David like a man after God's own heart. And even Jesus Himself said, He that speaketh of Himself seeketh His own glory. And He said, I don't come to speak of Myself. I've come to speak of the One who sent Me. So when Saul has this attitude, as it says in the last verse of the previous chapter, 17 verse 58, Saul said to David, Whose son are you, young man? Whose son are you? How did he not know whose son he was? I think... Saul is anticipating David's upcoming praises that he's going to receive. And he's sort of putting him in his place, putting him down like, who are you? I mean, he had had already been playing the harp, remember, before Saul. Many a times he had been in his home. He had quenched, as it were, the spirit in in the presence of Saul, and after this great victory, who he had already given him his garments, he had known something about him, and now he's saying, Who's, who, who are you? Who are you, young man? Or young fella? That's, that's a prideful spirit that Saul is exhibiting. And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. What a low profile he takes. I am a son of your servant. What was Jesus' attitude about Himself? Meek and lowly riding on the fowl of a donkey. Jesus did not flex His muscles. Jesus could have displayed many times before Herod or before Pilate His divine powers that He could have executed. He could have dazzled them with the might that He had. We know that He could have snapped His fingers and called on the legions of angels and they would have come to rescue Him. But none of that did He use. He veiled His glory, the Bible says. He made Himself a little lower than the angels for the suffering of our sins. Lower than the angels. He became even lower than us in the sense that He says, I'm not a man, I'm a worm. A maggot, that is. The maggots were what were used by the by the priests when they would stomp on this particular uh, species to get the juices out of these worms. And from those juices, they would become the stain for the priestly garments. What a beautiful picture that is, that our Lord Jesus became a worm and was trampled down in death. And from His death, we get a garment where we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. All because the One who was God the Son 
became the Son of Man on earth and was despised and rejected of men and was laid on the cross and crucified as a worm for our sin so that we could be justified and have a righteousness before God. Jonathan loved David because David loved God. Who do you love the most in your life? I know you love your wife, you love your children. Wonderful, that's all natural. Praise the Lord for that. There's some spiritual involved in that, of course, as well. But I hope that we have a love for those that love the Lord. You know, anyone that is saved is said to be a lover of God. Might be little, it might be bigger or large or huge, whatever it is. But we love God. And we should grow in our love for Him. And you know, I think when someone has a love for God, that love for God comes out of them. It oozes out of them. It becomes evident. And it's those kinds of people that are worthy to follow. Whose faith follow? Jonathan, you're following the right guy. You're knitting yourself to the right person. The Bible says, He that walks with wise men shall be wise but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Proverbs 13.20 Who do we associate with? Who are the ones that we have communion with? David says, I'm a a companion of all them that fear thee and of all them that keep thy precepts. Those are the ones that we want to have association with. We want to call on the Lord with them who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Jonathan had wisdom. He had discernment. He saw what Saul could not see about David. And it wasn't just in word, but was in deed. He stripped himself of his garments, gave them to Saul, but it says there that he made a covenant with him. And you know, when we're saved, we're in covenant relationship with God. We're united with Him. As a matter of fact, uh, Colossians 2.19 says that we're knitted together with Christ as we hold Him as our head. We're bound to the Lord Jesus. I hope we appreciate our covenant relationship with the Lord. And I hope that in our covenant relationship that we have a sacrificial spirit that we want to yield to Him those things and say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Now let's move on to the woman here. The women that are praising. Who are they praising? Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his Ten thousands. Before we get onto the attitude that Saul gets from these lady singers who were singing and dancing, they were rightfully celebrating the victory over the enemies. What does this remind you of? Can you think of another example where the women came out and were dancing and singing and rejoicing? Where is that found? Where? Say that again. That's one. Give me another one. How about when they crossed the Red Sea? And what had happened there? Let me read a few verses. Notice the difference between the woman's praises where we are reading here in 1 Samuel 18 versus what these women are singing after going through the Red Sea and seeing the sea close upon the enemies. Like the women saw the victory over the Philistines, these Women in Exodus 15 see the victory over the Egyptians. And what are the, how do they sing? It says they sang the, Mo, the song of Moses. 
and the children of Israel this song they sang unto the Lord, saying, notice, I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare Him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Etc., etc. You get the point? In Exodus 15, the women are rightfully giving the glory to whom it belongs. Lord, You have caused this triumph gloriously. We exalt You. We praise You. We give You honor for the accomplishments of the defeat of the enemy. Whereas in the songs of the woman here in Samuel, it's to David the praises are going. It's to Saul that the praises are going. What would we call this? Arthur Pinkoff, and he probably wrote this back in the... Well, it had to be before the 50s because that's when he died. He's called it hero worship, which I think is a very appropriate term for our day. Hero worship. We love to give the praises to men rather than to the praise of God. Sometimes I get a little nervous sometimes when I... I've been guilty of it myself. I don't know how much guilt we should take for this, but sometimes we say, oh, so-and-so is going to be a speaker at the conference, or so-and-so is going to be a speaker at the conference. Like, these are the big guns. Like, these are like the celebrities. Let's not make men of God into celebrities. And I'm not saying that they want to be celebrities. But I think sometimes we uh, think more highly of men than we ought to think. And I think they would say that, that like someone has said, men at best are... Uh, the, the best of men are men at best. So let's be mindful that we not have a spirit of hero worship. I know for years myself I had certain commentators that I, I got so much under their skin that I almost wanted to adopt their name for my name and become like them in my, my beliefs and so on. Whereas I want to now, I hope, give the Lord the praise. Not that I want to throw a commentary or that I want to sort of diminish the value of excellently skilled and taught and gifted men and women too. I, I want to praise the Lord for all of the above and thank God that He's gifted them for that. What a wonderful... Uh, those sisters, I'm sure when you heard Greg Beale speak yesterday uh, and the day before, huh? Wasn't that an amazing teaching? And I, and I had that brother in seminary, that, that, that uh, brother. What a, what a gifted brother that was. What wonderful ministry and... I'd go, I'd go, I'd travel miles to go and hear him. Absolutely. But I just want us to get, keep in mind this idea of hero worship. I think it's a, it's a real problem in, in society and even among Christians. Not so much about preachers maybe necessarily, but maybe, you know, you have a certain recreation or a certain, maybe it's a sport or movies or movie heroes or whatever. And you may want to even put their, your, their name and their picture on your t-shirts and, or you want to have a tattoo like them or of them or whatever, whatever. Let's be careful that we not displace God with men. You know, I like following sports to some degree. And the ones that I like to root for are the ones that have the least egos. I cannot stand persons in general 
And I, th- I think the Lord would be displeased as well. But especially these athletes, their heads are bigger than the gymnasium that they play ball in. They're so egotistical. It, you can even see it on their face. Their countenance gives you that impression like there's something else. Oh, if a man think himself to be something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. So let us be careful that we not fall into the same rut that these women, maybe sincerely, are giving praises to Saul and to David for their accomplishments. Well, the result of this song, of course, triggered in Saul a reaction that was probably latent there anyway with Saul towards David. But now it's heightened, now it's focused upon, and it says in verse 9, Saul eyed him from that day, or from that day forward. Or he was watching him vigilantly. He wanted to keep David lassoed. He wanted to keep David subdued and sort of out of the picture. That's why he sends him on an escapade to go on a military journey battle in hopes, sort of like the way David sent Uriah the Hittite to go on the front of the battle to be slain, so Saul is sending David up for the same purpose so that he would be killed in battle and then he would be out of sight and out of, out of mind. But the woman's song of praises of man brought out the flesh of Saul. We have to be careful what we listen to, music and otherwise, that it doesn't bring the flesh out of us. We all have the flesh, and the flesh can be reactivated, it can be stirred up, and it can go in such a direction that it almost, it rivals the spirit. And we can become people like Paul was charged by the Corinthians as walking after the flesh. That's what they were saying about him, walking after the flesh. And here he was a spiritual man journeying for the Lord, and still they ascribed to him the title of a man walking after the flesh. But we have a tendency that we could fall into fleshly pursuits and that would, of course, be dangerous. Where that would end up, who knows. Flattery in general is a dangerous thing. Now, we don't, we don't get any response of David from the praises that he received. I think a wise man will look at praises differently than would be a foolish man. Uh, in Jameson Fawcett commentary on verse uh, 21 of chapter 27 of Proverbs, which says, As the fining pot for silver, and as the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. In other words, the test of a man's character, and a woman's character, can be tested on how they handle praise. How they handle praise. Jameson Fawcett Bible commentary says this about what praise does, how it tests character. For a vain man, they seek it. For a weak man, they're inflated by it. But by a wise man, they disregard it. Disregard it. It says about the chief priests in the synagogue, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's all Saul could see with the praises of men and how it was lifting David up possibly, although David shows no signs of being, uh, you could say, enlarged in his ego over this, but rather he's somehow just moving in the circle and no 
nothing that's boisterous, nothing that's uh, overt about David. He's just carrying on, disregarding, as it were, the praises of those who were saying, David has slain his ten thousands. How do we handle praise? You know, everybody is worthy, is worthy of praise. The Bible says, when the Lord comes, then shall every man have praise of God. 1 Corinthians 4. And I don't think it's a wrong thing. The Bible says to esteem those certain ones more highly because of their labor and so on. And it's appropriate to give honor to whom honor is due. But those that receive honor, rightfully receive honor, have to be careful to not let it inflate them like the Corinthians. You are puffed up. Not with love, but with knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but love edifies. Praise. You know, I want to encourage you. I hope you want to encourage me. I think it's a good thing to say something commendable to somebody. Um, even in the workplace, I've, I've, you know, I've worked in different places and, um, or I've had people work for me or whatever. And I always wanted to give some, some commendation, some thanks for what you've done or appreciate you doing this or thank you for doing that. That can mean a lot to somebody. And I think we, we need to be more aware of that. Uh, try to be less self-full and more self-less uh, by giving recognition to others. Think more highly of others than you do of yourself. And I think that's appropriate. Those that receive praise need to be mindful that they shouldn't be seeking it. I remember, I think it was Whitfield after he preached his first sermon. I know he himself was awed by how the Spirit of God used him in his preaching of the Word. His very first sermon, it was inside a a Church of England building. Um, And he sensed that there was something super special in the way in which God had used him. And right after the service, he scooted out. He didn't want to have anybody pat him on the shoulders. And he said, how come you didn't want to stick around? You know how much people would have praised you? And he says, I know that. The devil already did. And that's why I had to get out of there. And that's the kind of man, that's the kind of woman that God will use. A a contrite and humble spirit are the ones whom God chooses to dwell among and with. And I think David demonstrates that though he's not highlighted in the chapter physically, yet I do believe he is in the background here, importantly so. Proverbs 6.26 says, which I think is the title of our sermon this morning, that jealousy arises a man's fury. Jealousy. We don't often hear that word, at least I haven't heard it in recent times, but jealousy is a big thing. Um, big thing. Um, Under the surface, though, of jealousy is pride. I think that's what fuels jealousy. Um, Now, we know that God is a jealous God, and this has no application to God whatsoever. We're talking about jealousy that we may have towards others. That may be excelling in a way that we're not, or they have more of something that we don't have, maybe materially wise or spiritually gifted wise or whatever it may be. If we have a jealous spirit, 
and we, we do, we need to go under the surface and say, only by pride. Pride comes contention. Pride is a downfall of man. Pride is what fuels our feelings of jealousy. And that's something that we need to subdue. We need to subdue that. Now, the last thing we have, after mentioning how that Jonathan loved David, the woman praised David, Saul was jealous of David, but verse 16, it says the people loved David. For going in and going out, maybe it was because of the way he led the troops. Some of your translations will read that way. Because the way he led the troops in battle. He was a man worthy of respect. He was doing a great job. Saul was a failure. Remember, Saul's a man after the flesh. David's a man after the spirit, as it were. David a man is a man who loves the Lord. That's a high commendation. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone loves not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be what strong language? Let him be anathema. That means let him be cut off. Let him be accursed. Let him be cast into hell. That's how serious it is to not be a lover of the Lord. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord. David loved... I mean, Jonathan loved David. David loved Jonathan. Their souls were knitted together. Greater than the way a man would love a woman, the Bible says. That's how fond of each other David was and Jonathan was of each other. But when you think of the Lord Jesus, the Bible says, unto you which believe, He is precious. That's what Sovereign Grace Chapel is about. Jesus. It's not about me, you, the music team, the one that can do this or that, the teacher, the preacher. It's about Jesus. He's got to get, as the Bible says, that He must in all things have the preeminence. And when a church substitutes Jesus with someone else, that church is going to fail. And all of the flesh is going to come out. And under the surface stuff will come to the surface. But if Jesus is exalted high and lifted up, if a church like Sovereign Grace is Christ-centered, and we say, all glory be to Him, He is worthy. We love Him who loved us and gave Himself for us on the cross. We are lovers of the Lord. It says that of Solomon, 1 Kings 3.3, 3, Solomon loved the Lord. What a description that is. There's another man after God's own heart. And that doesn't mean that his heart was 100% all the time pure. We know that they fall, both David and uh, Sol- Solomon fall. So too even with us. We can fall even as lovers of the Lord. But if we put Him first and recognize that all the praises belong to Him and not to me, not to man. It's not I, I, I. It's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ who, who deserves the rightful place of giving Him His rightful place in glory. Like Paul talks about himself this way. He says that he was... Uh, Chief of sin. Well, first he says he was the least of the apostles. He says he was the least of the saints. And then he says, lastly, he was the chiefest of sinners. 
Wow! As that light got brighter on the road to Damascus, spiritually speaking, he got lower and lower and lower. He was a man of prestige. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a respected rabbi, as it were. But when the light of Christ shone upon him, and as he grows, as he learns more about the Lord, it says he becomes lesser and lesser and lesser in his own eyes. To the point that, last of all, he says, Though I am nothing. Though I am nothing. You know what true joy is? Is Jesus first, J, Y, U, last, O, nothing in between. That will be a mighty child of God. That will be a real servant of their Father in heaven. David takes that title. He says, I'm only a son of the servant, of your servant, Jesse. What a beautiful picture is being painted for us there as David is saying, I'm associated with my father. My father is a servant. And that's what God the Father is. He's a servant and sends His Son to be a servant to us so that we could be able to be lovers of the Lord. That we can love Him who loved us and gave Himself for us on Calvary's cross. David, a man after God's own heart, a man worthy of following, a man of faith who believed in the Lord. May God use this passage and the passages of the past and the present. And hopefully you can read along in the life of David as we take that journey through the book of Samuel and we learn about the life of David and some of the experiences that he had that can relate to you and I. So that we can, as the book of Hebrews tells us, that he is a type or a shadow of one that we can follow in his footsteps. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for men of God and women of God uh, that we read of in the Holy Scriptures and who you tell us, Lord, in your word, whose faith we ought to follow. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to have a lesser view of ourselves and a higher view of the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to be willing to take the low place. As the Lord Jesus says, he that is greatest among you will be the least. And Father, we want to give you the praise and glory and honor. For, Lord, truly without You we are nothing. We can do nothing apart from Your enabling of us to do so. We ask, Lord, that You would give us the grace and wisdom to be able to to follow the Lord Jesus. And, Father, for anyone in this room that is not a lover of the Lord Jesus, we pray, O God, as our sister was singing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face. May, Lord, You turn their hearts to the Lord Jesus May they behold Him and see in Him the beauty and the excellence and the sacrifice and the shed precious blood that was performed at Calvary's cross for the remission of sins and that they would from their heart believe that it was even them for whom Jesus died. Lord, have mercy on them, we pray Thee. Bless Sovereign Grace Chapel, Lord, in the days ahead. Help us, Lord, to be humble, to wash one another's feet to be willing to give Jesus the fullest place that He is so worthy of in all of our Bible studies, our prayer meetings, our small groups, our worship services, Lord. When we come together in even informal ways, might we recognize, Lord, the One that is worthy of such preeminence in our lives and in our midst. Hear our cry, Lord, as we give You praise in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.